What's up, entrepreneurs? I'm Bud Wentz. I've been a longtime commercial member of NAI and uh, been to many of the conferences, and I've been uh, building microscopes for uh, nature centers and museums uh, now for 35 years. What's up, interpreters? I'm Heather from NAI, and I'm your corporate engagement and partnerships manager. What's up, interpreters? I am NAI Executive Director Paul Caputo. We are here with Bud Wentz. Heather and I have both been with NAI for a long time. I started in 2002. Heather started in 1995. For the entire time that I have been at NAI, Bud Wentz and Wentzscope has been a part of our commercial membership. Uh, the very first issue of Legacy Magazine that I laid out, Bud Wentz had an ad, Wentzscope had an ad, and so you've been involved in interpretation so long, uh, Bud, and with NAI for such a long time. How did you get involved in interpretation and how did interpretation lead you to building microscopes or was it the other way around? Well, I've uh, been involved in uh, combining education and entertainment, I would say, uh, almost from day one. Uh, when I was a child, I was always uh, building building contraptions and toys and things like that. Uh, entertaining the younger kids in the family and uh, the kids in the neighborhood. And uh, way before building microscopes, I, I worked uh, for a museum for seven years at a science museum in Berkeley. Uh, also, I was the uh, uh, creative consultant for 26 of the uh, Mr. Wizards uh, TV shows. And uh, the younger members uh, probably are familiar with Bill Nye, but Mr. Wizard is the person on whose shoulder uh, Bill Nye built his show, uh, uh, Mr. Wizard, who I work for, Don Herbert, uh, started the concept of uh, science uh, educational television starting back when I was a kid. And I had the pleasure of being involved with him when he brought his show back on air in a different format in the mid 80s. Uh, so I've been involved in inter interpretation many different ways. And uh, the uh, microscope uh, grew out of a project, uh, which sort of I envisioned as a child. I, I always thought people should have a microscope that's much easier to look for. And I thought I would uh, design such a thing and try to sell the idea to a toy company. And uh, what happened was a different route. I was doing consulting for the New York Hall of Science uh, back in the mid 80s, and they needed a microscope for an exhibit. And I looked in all the catalogs and I just couldn't find anything that was suitable uh, for public viewing that would withstand the abuse and also be easy to look through. Uh, so I, I decided that perhaps I could build a stronger uh, version of this idea for a toy and that could be used in the exhibit. So I built the first Wenscope microscope out of plywood, actually, never thinking I'd build another museum microscope again. And uh, people saw it. And within a few weeks, people were asking me to build microscopes for their museum as well. So then I decided, well, maybe this would be an interesting adventure. And so I sort of wound up projects with the New York Hall of Science. Uh, and for a year and a half, I lived on credit cards, actually. And that was how I financed the beginning of the uh, microscope business, getting all the tooling going and putting bread on the table. And uh, so the first one went into museums in 1988, the first production models. And it's uh, it's been a lifelong uh, uh, adventure and, and very much a pleasure to be building these things and uh, traveling around and meeting the different people that use them. I, I think you have a really interesting educational background, too, right? Like you're not a trained interpreter. You obviously knew how to build microscopes. Well, uh, I always tell people that college is part of your education, but in my case, it's really the small part. I have two degrees, uh, mechanical engineering from Berkeley and a, a law degree, Juris Doctor degree from uh, UC Los San Francisco. 
Uh, but my real education is uh, I, ever since I was young, I was working with tools and building things. Uh, I was first inspired about optics, actually, uh, when an aunt and uncle gave me an old-fashioned thing called a magic lantern. It's sort of a precursor of a slide projector. And uh, I worked with a candle and didn't make a very bright image. But, uh, I, you know, I, I was just fascinated with that. Also, when I was at Disneyland, they they had an exhibition, which is unfortunately no longer there, where they had a rotating device with spinning mirrors that created animated images. And I and that just absolutely fascinated me. So I started doing a lot of um, research and projects when I was in junior high and high school, uh, building optical devices. And one was a, a thing called a movieola. It's a device they used to use when movies were shot on film, and they would run the film through this uh, a little mini uh, projector that could sit on a desk. They'd turn a crank to make the film go through. And I, I was fascinated with those. So I went down to a local uh, audiovisual shop where I lived in Riverside at the time, and I rented one for $2. I took it home and I completely took it apart and then uh, figured out how it worked and what all the elements were. And then I put it all back together again and never told them, and it still worked. And I took it back, paid them the $2. And then I built one. And uh, it worked, uh, not as well, obviously, but uh, you could crank the film through and, and see the movie. <laughs> and then uh, when I was in sixth grade, I guess, uh, I, I took a wood shop class. The boys took wood shop, shop then and the girls took cooking class. Times have changed. Uh, but the, uh, none of the boys knew how to use tools in this class. So they were learning how to use a hammer and a screwdriver and that kind of thing. And of course, I was practically born with tools, I knew how to use a table saw when I was much too young and magically didn't cut my hands off. And I had a, I had a lathe and things like that. And the kids wouldn't even know what this stuff was. So I talked to the, the instructor and I said, instead of me building the, the stuff that they're building, I'd like to build a microscope projector. And so as an independent project, the instructor let me do that. So, so that's my real education actually. And then also, I think a really interesting part of a person's education is travel. Uh, when I was, uh, let's see, I was 23 at the time. I'd never been out of the country other than across the border into uh, uh, Victoria on the Canada side and, and Tijuana, a few of the other uh, border towns going into Mexico. And I thought I should really see the world. So I figured out it was possible uh, to to get around, go all the way around the world in 80 days, inspired by that movie, incidentally, the, the David Niven movie from the 60s, I guess it was. Well, I didn't have a lot of money, so I worked two jobs while I was in school the year before this summer, and it's the only summer I didn't work. So I actually saved uh, $1,100 working two jobs and putting myself through school, and so I didn't apply for jobs. And uh, by the time I left the country, I just had 900 left. 200 went to the uh, visas and things like that that I knew I would need. And I just had kept heading uh, uh, east or west, rather. Uh, the first flight, actually, I hitchhiked to ride to Japan. I was in the Air National Guard at the time. And I really wasn't supposed to do that. But the Navy captain who said he would drop me off outside of Tokyo didn't seem to understand or care or know. So anyway, that's how I got to Japan. <laughs> and then I hitchhiked all over Japan. Uh, and and that a few, I had to buy a few flights uh, to get me uh, to uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong. But in Taiwan, I hitch everywhere, of course. And then I and, um, had to get over. The Vietnam War was still going on. The U.S. was out of the war, but I had to get across that. And uh, oddly, the commercial plane flew right over it, much to my surprise. 
Uh, I hitchhiked down the Malay Peninsula and stayed in uh, Buddhist temples along the way. And then uh, in India, it's cheaper to take the trains across. So I took the, the, the mail trains across India, the third class mail trains. It cost $4 to go all the way across India on a student discount. Uh, and then buses was the only transportation from there. Uh, there are trains in Pakistan, but then going toward Europe, it's buses all the way. So across Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey. And then I hitchhiked from Turkey to uh, Germany. It was quite an adventure. I just have such fond memories of that trip. And of course, when I travel now, I like the creature comforts. So now my idea of camping is a hotel with uh, slow room service. Uh, also, I wish I had more language uh, learning when I was young. I, I can bumble my way through a little bit of Spanish, French, and Chinese, uh, just enough to be dangerous, people tell me. Oh, and having lots of jobs while I was in school. I always worked while I was in school, different jobs. I was a fuller brush salesman. Uh, so I, I got comfortable talking with strangers. And, and that then, was door uh, to door, right? The brush it was door to door. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people today don't know such a thing exists because uh, back then the women stayed at home, the men worked. There was always somebody at home during the day. And... Uh, uh, I, it was interesting. One of the products uh, was hair shampoo, and I never sold any for shampooing hair. But if they had a poodle, I'd always give them a free sample. And then I, I had a customer for life because it fluffed up the poodles unbelievably. Yeah. <laughs> this interview has gone a lot of directions. I did not expect it to uh, <laughs> already here. But you mentioned uh, an interesting year uh, when you said that the uh, first uh, microscopes went into production in 1988. 1988 is the year that NAI was founded. NAI has changed quite a bit since 1988. I'm curious, knowing that the you know the the microscopes that that you build are fairly low tech. They're intentionally low tech, and you say on your website, you know, there's no video monitor, there's no computer needed. How different is the current microscope that you're building from those first ones that you built in 1988? There have actually been a lot of changes uh, which aren't so apparent because the rugged housing, you, you know, they say if something's not broke, don't fix it. So the rugged housing just proved to be absolutely uh, ideal. Uh, but uh, the, the first change, well, a minor change, the, the main view lens got bigger. And of course, the quality of the lenses has improved. But the first big change happened about, I think, about 12 or 15 years ago. And what precipitated the change was people have changed over the years. And uh, when I first started building microscopes, everybody had grown up uh, using tools a little bit more than they do today. Today, uh, the young people who do most of the maintenance at museums and nature centers, they spent their childhood playing video games, uh, playing soccer and that kind of thing. They didn't build the heat kit radio and the, they, and the model airplanes and the go-karts and all that. So I was finding that people absolutely, it was like asking them to fly to the moon to use a screwdriver to open a lamp box to change a light bulb. And the light bulb in the early scopes was filament type and had to be changed every six months to a year. And it would burn out. And if the one person who knew how to use the tools to do that simple task was on vacation, the, the microscope would sit not working sometimes for a month or more. So I had to redesign the lighting. Uh, so it uses an LED now that has the current ones I'm shipping have a life expectancy that'll go for decades. The first ones uh, are good for about 10 years. Uh, so as people change, I had to change the product. Um, so now another change that's happened, uh, and we I still do produce the standard Wenscope, which is pretty low tech, just uses light and lenses. 
but uh, a lot of people want to see everything on video today. And actually, I'm not a great believer in that. I think there's probably too much video in our lives. Uh, you know, you go into some museums and it's all screens now. Uh, and of course, video is in malls and airports and people have TVs in every room and and so on. But, you know, there was a, there was a demand for that and people expected that. And I, for years, was saying, well, that's not such a great thing. And then people thought, well, he's just saying that because he doesn't have a video option. So now uh, the, the version that I call the macro uh, works with digital imaging. So it, it's actually quite high tech. Uh, the, it looks the same as the one that everybody's familiar with, and you've probably seen them and not realized, but it uses digital imaging. So there's a, a, an imaging sensor and a converter and a, and a video screen down inside the microscope. So you still have the visitor experience of looking into the microscope, but because it works digitally, you can run a cable to a big screen. And uh, so uh, over the years, I've had to keep the product up with the times, as they say. It, it's been really... Uh, a constant learning process. You never stop learning. How many Wenscopes are out there in the world? There are about 2,000 now. Yeah, it's it's been in, probably, it's probably been in more, at least a couple thousand museums if you include the exhibits that travel from one museum to another, to another, to another, and so on. How did your travels, the, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. I'm just now learning about this, you know, this incredible background that you have traveling. How did that inform your perspective as a creative person who who builds things and as a, as a business owner, what, you know, that this, this worldliness that you've described, how has that impacted the work that you do with, with Wenscope? Well, tremendously, because about a fourth of the uh, uh, microscopes go overseas. And some years it's been more than that. And because of my travel, uh, I've become much more comfortable in dealing with uh, differences of culture and that kind of thing, even how they handle purchases and uh, language barriers and uh, and, and so forth and the, the timing of things. You know, in some cultures, things move very slowly and you just have to accept that and not, not let that be too upsetting. Um, and uh, I think because of my travel, it wasn't such a scary thought of of uh, uh, shipping equipment overseas. I just it's one about figuring out how you do that. And uh, had I not traveled so much, I probably would have just ruled that out as being anything that I could attempt to do. Yeah. So it helped tremendously. Paul mentioned that or asked and you talked about the changes of Wenscope. Has, have the materials changed? When I was first starting out. I tried to use as many things off the shelf as I possibly could uh, because I wasn't as versed in where to get things custom manufactured. And also uh, the quantities were smaller and it's hard to find companies that will custom make small quantities, uh, you know, without charging a, a ransom. Uh, so the first few pieces that you're looking into actually are a sewer pipe, believe it or not, a, a, a white PVC sewer pipe, but I didn't want it to look like a pipe fitting that you'd find in a hardware store. So I took a larger fitting and inside that I glued the standard four and a half inch outside diameter white pipe. And then I machined off the outer part at an angle. So it's sort of tapered looking. So it doesn't look at all like a piece of a uh, pipe fitting. And uh, eventually then I switched to using machined aluminum powder coated. And uh, so that was that was a, a, quite an improvement. Also, it allowed me to make the lens, the opening diameter, what I wanted, and not what the pipes fitting happened to come in. 
So let's see other materials. Well, I use laser cutting for some of the parts. Uh, two of the parts now are 3D printed. So I'm always looking for newer technologies for how to produce parts. The the original, the housings are actually still cast at the same aluminum casting foundry in the, the San Francisco Bay area. And, uh, and the painting process on the outside is still the same, uh, a two-part uh, paint that cures rather than dries. Here in California, uh, we have very strict regulations to help the air quality, which is a good thing. And so there are certain kinds of paints that we use here. Over over the years, some of the materials have changed uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Plus the, the change to the new technology of digital imaging. Yeah. But you have been a member. I, I, it's been we, a long time. Yeah, it's been a long yeah. time. How did you yeah. find out about NAI? Do you remember? I think, well, the first two conferences I went to showing microscopes were Association of Scientific Technology Centers and what used to be called the American Association of Museums. And somebody told me when I was uh, in the process of developing tooling and so on to build a production model, the microscope, somebody said, you've got to go to these two conferences. I didn't know of NAI at the time. I think I learned of NAI at one of those conferences. I think one of your people may have come there and said, you might want to consider NAI. So, Bud, I need to ask you this story. This is something I've wanted to ask you for a, a long time. This like may I, be the reason we're doing the podcast. This, this, oh. the, the, <laughs> we're very interested in your background, but... Yeah, so <laughs> you ever since I started with NAI in 2002... Like I said, there was a there was an ad for Wentzscope in the first Legacy magazine. That ad and every ad since then have featured a photograph of a boy holding a white cat, and the cat is looking into the the lens, the big wide lens of this Wentzscope. Obviously, that's one of your microscopes, and you know, so this looks like it's a, a custom photo that was taken. I am curious to know the story behind, the, given that this was. 20 plus years yeah, ago that, that I started was shot in 1988, that. I believe. Yeah, that's a full grown cat in that picture. So that that cat has sadly passed He's on. I'm passed sure away. That, Will, Willie is no longer with us. Yes. So that's yeah. Willie. Well, that's we Willie. have wanted yeah. to know the story <laughs> of that photograph and in particular, that cat. How did this? Well, this it's, photo become... it, it is an interesting story. So I when, when I decided I needed some kind of a photo to, to show the microscope, the person I called, the go-to source, was an old buddy from high school who was probably the craziest person you'd ever meet. Uh, he was sort of the class comedian. Everybody loved him. Ugliest person in the world. Uh, I don't mean that <laughs> negatively. But everybody liked him because he compensated by having a wonderful sense of humor. And he, he became a professional photographer. So that's who I called. And I knew he'd come up with something that would just be, you know, eye-catching. So, But I said I wanted dogs and kids in the photo. I didn't think of a cat. And uh, unfortunately, the parents of these kids, they they had the girls were dressed in their party dresses and the boys were in their go to Sunday meeting clothes, their hair all perfect. And, and they didn't look like real kids. And then uh, the dogs had all been to the grooming clinic the day before and they, did, they didn't look like real dogs. Well, we went ahead and photographed because that's what we had. And this cat kept wandering in and out of the studio. The cat lived at the photo studio. He was the mascot of the studio. And back then we shot on film and uh, the photographer said we have, and he shot on big format film, you know, where you put a plate of film in and so on. So you ration the film because they're expensive. 
he had two plates left. He said, let's put Willie in the photo. It was just an afterthought because we'd finished all the shooting we thought we needed to do. Uh, one of the photos was double exposed, so we couldn't use that one. So the only photo that actually came out is the one you've seen for years. And that's the photo that became almost like an icon. And uh, so that's the story behind Willie. And incidentally, the cat, uh, when you look at the photo, see if you can figure out he's missing one part of his body. Nobody oh. ever notices it. There's something missing. Oh, that's now. Is this going to remain a mystery or are you going to tell us? Okay, well, we'll I guess I better tell you because, yeah. Okay, he's missing an ear. I see you're looking at something. You must be looking yeah, at the cat. It's hard to he's see. missing an ear, ear and you never notice it. You, he never had the ear. He just was born without it. So that that's the story of Willie. Oh. <laughs> I am so glad to know that story. Well, Bud, this has been so much fun to to finally catch up with you and to hear these stories and to learn your background. So fascinating to learn everybody's story. You know, you just never can predict where these conversations are, are going to go. So thank you, thank you so much for for joining us and sharing your stories with us. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. And, and interpreters, interpreters that's, that's what's up. What's up. By far our best one yet. By far the best one yet. <laughs> Leave it to an engineer to, to, to nail that. <laughs> Thank but, you, bud. Right. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank okay. you, bud. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.